0: Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. How much is too much? Most of us consume our movies and entertainment through streaming services, a wonderful technological opportunity afforded us by the increasing sophistication of Internet capabilities. How great is it to be able to access virtually any movie that we like with the click of a cursor? Vast cinema libraries, including films that have been lost for decades, obscure indies, hidden in vaults for years, and even neglected studio movies can be seen instantly and on demand. It used to be that Netflix was the source we would turn to for our movies, but that system has been fractured. Rather than license their movies to Netflix, the studios and the networks have discovered that they can make mountains of money by mounting their own streaming networks, splintering audiences, and making them have to choose where they spend their hard-earned dollars. Netflix is still the king of the streamers, followed closely behind by Amazon Prime and Disney+, Plus, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. Paramount and CBS have Paramount Plus, NBC Universal has Peacock, Disney also owns Hulu, but there are so many more pay streamers to choose from for every film interest. The Criterion Channel, Shudder, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, Crunchyroll, Roku, Apple TV Plus, and so many more, and that's not counting the free channels like Sony's Crackle, Tubi, Hoopla, Canopy, and a ton of others. So, how do you choose? because certainly no one will want to pay for them all. And each of them has been creating their own original movies and shows, exclusive to their services. And then, in 2021, Warner Brothers decided that all of their theatrical releases for the year would go on HBO Max at the same date, without an increase in price. And now, Universal is offering Halloween Kills on Peacock on the same day as it drops in theaters. They're getting cocky. As of this writing, Hulu and Netflix and Disney+, Plus, the three most popular services, have raised their prices, and you can be sure the others will follow. Which services do you subscribe to? And again, how much is too much? We are drowning in a sea of choices, and hands are digging into our pockets, grabbing for the cash at hand. I subscribe to Netflix, Hulu, Shudder, HBO Max, Peacock, and surely a few others, and I can barely keep track of it all. I'd love to hear your choices. I first met Axel Carolyn at the Brussels International Festival of Fantastic Films back in 2004, when she was a film journalist specializing in the horror genre. In the years since, I've seen her blossom into a highly regarded screenwriter and director. We'll discuss her progress from fan to pro to constantly working filmmaker after this. This episode of Postmortem is sponsored by Nightstream, a -a one-of-a-kind digital festival featuring the best in genre cinema. Taking place from October 7th to the lucky 13th, Nightstream will spotlight some of the year's most buzzed-about films, have unique talks from top filmmakers in the industry, plus digital parties and special events. Viewable on your Roku, Apple TV, or web browser, this genre film festival brings leading filmmakers and emerging talent straight into your home. Some of last year's guests included John Carpenter, Nia DaCosta, Mike Flanagan, Elijah Wood, John Landis, Larry Fessenden, Barbara Crampton, Paul Shear, and of course their humble Master of Horror honoree, yours truly, Mick Garris. For the 2021 edition, proceeds benefit the artists and filmmakers involved, as well as the National Alliance to End Homelessness, and the climate change advocacy group, The Sunrise Movement. To get your badges and tickets and find out more information, head to nightstream.org and follow them on social media at Nightstream Fest. Available now from Dread, Bad Candy. On Halloween night in New Salem, radio DJs Chili Billy, Corey Taylor, and Paul, Zach Galligan from Gremlins tell a twisted anthology of terrifying local myths that lead to a grim end for small-town residents. So if you love Slipknot, Gremlins, and horror, this is the film for you. Bad Candy is out now on demand everywhere, and you can get your hands on the Blu-ray October 10th. Coming soon to Dread, Valve. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. No, this is not the Val Kilmer documentary. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She's been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. You can catch Val on October 5th and on Blu-ray November 2nd. Axel, hello. This is our first in person post mortem since before the pandemic.
2: This is wonderful. It's so, so great so happy to have to you be here. here.
1: Yeah, it's great. Well, we're here. We're going to talk about your new movie, The Manor, in a little bit, but there's so much that leads up to that. And starting with just your fandom, how does a young girl in Brussels become a horror fan?
2: <laughs> I've always been into horror. I don't know exactly why, but I think it appealed to me even when I was little, you know, I was watching Disney cartoons and all I would remember would just be the castle and the and the skeletons and, you know, that silly symphony with the skeletons dancing was right. my obsession when I was little. And the cartoon with... Um, the uh, Donald Duck's nephews knocking on the door. Oh when it's, yeah, uh, trick, or trick or treating, yeah. Yeah. and and all those would be just the kind of stuff that would stay in my head and that I would draw. And I was obsessed with ghosts and skeletons, and I wasn't really allowed to watch any horror movies when I was little, yeah. or very few movies at all, actually. And uh, and but but I could see pictures of them. And so I would look at the TV guide and I would see, oh, there's a Hellraiser. What is Hellraiser? What is that guy? Like, <laughs> and then imagine what the movie would be about. And then I remember things like Willow or things like that, even things that were more for kids that I wasn't allowed to watch. And then I had this whole story in my head of what it what might be about. And and that's kind of how it grew. And then I read Stephen King when I was very young because I could read books while I couldn't watch movies. And yeah, and I kind of get, got from there and... Grew into this.
1: Well, it it was an interesting path because it took a different direction for a while. You went to London to study law, right?
2: I did. I came from a very... My parents were very strict, and they came from a very academic background and they really wanted me to go to law school they said it's law medicine or business so (laughs) law seemed like the easy one to me (laughs) oh god god yeah Yeah. but I I I studied in Belgium and then I studied in London and then the first chance I got to go and do something else I took it because I always knew I wanted to work in film
1: well what was the family reaction to that I mean law is such an honored profession and here moving into your Belgian in Belgium, mm-hmm. it's not exactly Hollywood. Um, a career in film is not a sure thing. But your interest in movies and journalism and the like, how did that go down at home?
2: Not great. <laughs> <laughs> not that great. I mean, like you said, in Belgium, its a, it seems like it's impossible. It's not the same language. There's very little, or there was at the time, very little of an industry. Uh, the idea of being a filmmaker was just completely crazy and so my parents were convinced that I was gonna fail basically like my dad pretty much told me so and was hoping I would fail early enough that I would be able to come back to Brussels and be a lawyer and and, learn your lesson yeah yeah yeah. and by that point I had two master degrees in law and politics and so he was really bummed because I was doing well And, and he never got to see me, actually get to make movies, oh, which is a shame because he really passed away sad. before that happened. But I, I would like to think that he would have changed his mind by this point and just thought, okay, this is kind of cool.
1: Well, tell me how Biff, the Biff International Festival of Fantastic Films, tell me how that played a big part in your life. That's where I met you and you were a journalist at the time, covering it for, I don't know, was it Fang- Fangoria? You weren't even at Fangoria yet, I don't think.
2: I... Can't remember. I think I was. Um,
1: but that yes, that big festival big in your festival hometown, in
2: Brussels, completely randomly. This town that's dead for most of the year, just for two weeks every year, has this awesome horror festival. And when I was little, I would. Dream of being allowed to go, but you have to be 16 to get in, and <laughs> and so the moment I turned 16, I bought my tickets and I started attending. And at some point, I volunteered for them, and like I really grew up going to that place and and going to watch as many movies as I could. And you would watch stuff even though you had no idea where it, what it was or where it came from. And some were from Japan and some were from Korea and some were from, you know, there was everything. So it was such an education and it would have filmmakers like yourself come in and and talk about their movies and about what they were developing and I was just so desperate to talk to people and just understand filmmaking and that was... When I started going, the internet was not quite a thing yet or not something where you could readily go and get information about filmmaking. So I would read the books and then I would come up with questions. And then the chance to just speak to an actual filmmaker was such a treat. And I remember when we met... um, I'd met filmmakers the previous year who'd mentioned, "Oh, Mick Garris, he, he's so good, he's so cool. Like everybody really likes him." And you don't
1: have to say this. No, it's just like that.
2: that so I, I was like, "Oh my god, I need to go speak to him." And I remember coming up and just being like, "Hey, I heard you're like, you know, a huge horror fan on top of being a horror filmmaker." So well,
1: yeah, you kind of have to be. You know? <laughs> To do it,
2: not well. everybody is. Not it's everybody true. Is. Well,
1: well, tell me about that experience of, of of every year looking forward to this big festival that you just happen to live in the town where it takes place, and and how involving it was, and and what your work as a as a volunteer was, and
2: it was for two weeks. It was just all I could think about to the point where during the rest of the year would have nightmares where, oh, I missed the beginning of the festival. I missed the first three days. I was asleep. Like How could this yeah. happen? It just felt like suddenly things came alive. And, you know, we don't have Halloween in Belgium. There's no such thing. So there's no annual celebration of all things dark. And there's, again, very little access to filmmaking or to like, even access to movies at the time was not that easy to find. Like, it would have to sometimes drive all the way to... The other side of the country in Flanders to find different titles because they would release things on different schedule in Flanders <laughs> and in the French-speaking part. So, right. so it was very like it was a treat to get to try to find things that were a little bit more underground if you were a horror fan but just having two weeks of this being served to you on a platter it was wonderful
1: why do you think it happened in brussels of all places there are renowned festivals in la and new orleans in in montreal and other film-centric places why do you think brussels was it freddie himself who who brought it all together i guess so
2: i don't it predates me so i think it's their 40th this
1: yeah they're huge. no
2: it's yeah, I think it's their 40th this year. So. Wow. How so great. It's been going on for as long as I know.
1: So what were the movies that first captivated you?
2: As a as a horror fan, as yeah. a kind of the kind of things that made me want to get into Exactly,
1: this. the things that excited you, that made you think I I want to do this.
2: The big one for me was The Fly.
1: Yeah. Cronenberg's Cronenberg's The Fly, the fly. Yeah. nice. Yeah,
2: it was I was obsessed with it <clears throat> before I even saw it. Because I saw Jurassic Park and then I was obsessed with Jeff Goblin and then I wanted to see The Fly because, oh my God, he's in a horror movie. That seems so great. And then watching it, it was just, it's everything. It's the best love story, it's the best uh, gore, it's the best effect, but it's gore that makes you cry. Yeah. And I'm disgusted by what I'm watching, but I'm also really moved. And I thought, wow. The horror movies can do that.
1: Horror from the heart. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. You can put characters first. You can have something to say about it. And it's it's fascinating how you revisit that film on a regular basis and you always find something different in it. And people have seen it as an AIDS metaphor, but you could see it as a okay. metaphor for aging. I've seen it as a metaphor for depression. It's a metaphor for all kinds of things. And even if you take it first degree, it's wonderful. It's just so good.
1: Yeah, just as a monster movie. Yeah. But it's so much more than that in so many ways. It's and so good. To having it an intellect. was
2: that. And, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, no. Just having an intellect like David Cronenberg's making horror movies changes everything. Mm-hmm. and it was that end and
2: going with it with heart you know the the fact that Cronenberg makes movies that are very cerebral but they're also that one in particular very much comes from the heart it comes from something that's very emotional but and then on the other end uh reanimator to me was the one that made me go oh it looks like so much fun (laughs) (laughs) oh my god imagine how great it would be to play on that playground yeah
1: uh just recently we went to uh his his memorial Stuart Gordon's memorial, and. Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs and all these people were there, and it was just so beautiful. And there was, you know, to make a movie from the '80s that lasts into now mm-hmm. uh, is just such an amazing thing to be able to do, to, because it leaves a footprint
2: and such a variety of things. And that he did, and he was, he was getting better in some ways. You know, yeah, the last few yeah. plays that he did were amazing. Oh, the last amazing. few movies that he left were. Fantastic, and you know, Stewart was the first person I interviewed when I tried to when I started being a journalist. He was oh. the very first one, and and I admired him so much, and I thought it was so great that I got to speak to him. and And he actually kind of turned the mic on me. He was like, "What do you want to do?" And I said, mm-hmm. "You know, I want to work in film." And then he was like, "Well, it's lunchtime. I'm going to lunch with the with the festival. Do you want to join?" And I was like, oh, "Yes, I want yeah. to join."
1: <laughs> and
2: he was wonderful. He was always, you know, there's not that many people. In life, in general, who will help you or who will guide you? And and there's very few people. And I feel like perhaps as a young woman, that was particularly true. People who will see you and just go, "Yes, I can. I want you to do well, and I want to help you." Yeah. Um, And he was one of them. He was definitely one of them. He like anytime you have a question, anytime I can help, you know, in any kind of way, he was wonderful.
1: Well, tell me about the transition from going from journalism, because you loved, you wanted to meet your heroes and and talk to them and get insight, which is why I do this show, mm-hmm. is because I learn something from everybody every time, and it's, I'm always curious even now, um, but making that move into screenwriting and directing and producing, I mean, you you did Tales from Halloween, well, you acted in Centurion. Oh, God,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always known that I wanted to work in film. I've, I've known that since I was a very young teen. I've, it's always been present. I've always known it was going to be something linked to horror. And I was always writing. And I started writing when I was very, very, very young. Like before I even read Stephen King. Before I even, you know, the, from a very, very young age. From the moment I could hold a pencil and write words. I was obsessed with writing little stories and illustrating them. So it's always been there. But it's always felt like that wasn't quite what I wanted there was something more because I wanted to be on set I wanted to be part of that and and it took me many years and doing many different things because I took every opportunity I could Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes there's just something that presents itself and you just have to take it like I guess journalism was like that I was going to this festival and then friends were like oh do you want to interview this person or do you want to write about this or someone would invite me Brian Eusena invited me to see the set of Beneath Still Waters when I told him I dreamed of seeing a horror movie set. And he said, well, I'm going to be in Madrid. Why don't you come down in December? (laughs) And I called him from Madrid in December and I said, I'm here. (laughs) What do I do? Where are you? (laughs) I called his bluff and, and it was really nice. He invited me and I visited the set for two days. And then at the end, he said, you know, no one's going to write about this for Fangoria. So why don't you get in touch and do it? And so I kind of took those opportunities, and acting came about the same way. It was kind of like, if since you're on set, why don't you wear the makeup? Why don't you try yeah. this? And
1: Well, and, and quite strikingly, too, the dreads and the whole thing. The, you, that on um, Centurion was really, Centurion yeah, that was, was pretty fun.
2: Yeah. But I think that looking back, one of the reasons, perhaps, that made it tougher to see myself as a director is that all the role models I had were men. And all the mm. people around me who were trying to be filmmakers or who were filmmakers, were all men. And I didn't really realize that consciously, but I think that somehow unconsciously, perhaps it felt like, I'm going to try to get something that's not mine. I'm going to try to step on the toes of someone else who's more whose place it is to be there, and maybe mm. maybe this is not quite like projecting yourself as a filmmaker, as a director, when you don't see a lot of people who look like you doing it is hard. Yeah. And I think that's why it's very important right now to kind of put ourselves out there, and and, and I find it very important for women to support each other and, yeah, and show it's that a we can do this. it's a good time. It's a good
1: time for it. There is a sisterhood that's quite powerful right now.
2: There's finally something going on a little bit. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, tell me about the first one about Tales of Halloween, which you also produced with mm-hmm. Mike Mendez. Mm-hmm. So tell me how that came together. It's become kind of a Halloween classic anthology that people have embraced. You directed one, and I have wonderful memories of being on the set <laughs> yes. with Stuart Gordon and Lynn Shea and uh, Lisa Marie and in, in that one scene of Grim Grinning Ghost. So, so tell me about fun. how that all came together.
2: I had just moved to LA. I had... I just made my first feature when I was living in London, um, this feature Soulmate, and it came out just as I moved to L.A.
1: Right.
2: And all the contacts that I'd made from filming in the U.K. were, I had to start everything from scratch. And it's hard enough, you know, yeah. beginning as a filmmaker. But then when you when you move to a different city, and especially like L.A. is something that's so daunting, it felt like I had to start everything again. And And thankfully, a lot of people I know... Like Mike Mendez, like you know all the filmmakers who were part of Tales of Halloween were friends of mine, and we kind of thought, "What about we just pull all the talents together and we try to do something together that celebrates the fact that we love horror and we love this time of the year and we love halloween and 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 let's have amazing people that we know in front of the camera and behind the camera, and just everybody chiming in and and um uh, yeah, and that's how it happened. That's how we have so many different segments because we had so many friends. And yeah, ten part segments. Of it, ten or segments. Oh my god! And uh, and I came up with the blues concept and and produced it with Mike Mendez and um, and it was very a very very joyful experience, but also very difficult. And working with friends is the best and the worst. Yeah, um, you have to. <laughs>
1: kind of hold the purse strings and the like. You know? Yeah. Or was yeah. everybody set free to make their own short and just giving given a budget, or were they working all within the same we network?
2: We were all working together. So we, we were meeting in my backyard once a week or once every two weeks, and we would discuss all the stories, and, and I would compile the stories, and, and we would give each other notes and try to make sure that every short was the best it could be and and when you do that with friends it's it's wonderful but it's also the worst because yeah they, who the fuck are you to give me notes yeah know? and <laughs> like you
1: what? your job is to be critical
2: it's yeah yeah and, and you're it, the producer and some people know? took that really well and some people took it really badly yeah. and so it's it's wonderful that we're all still friends <laughs>
1: well there's kind of this odd bermuda triangle of of genre people living in the Burbank, North Hollywood, Studio City area that all kind of see each other regularly and and show up at different events when there were events. Now I thought you were going to say who
2: all disappeared. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, no, uh, just the opposite. But, you know, with Mike Mendez and you and, and so many other people who just kind of gather together, Bill Malone and and lots of other people within the genre who happen to just be in this geographic area that kind of spark each other creatively it's kind of exciting
0: it's
2: wonderful it's wonderful it was i've missed it a lot since the start of the pandemic yeah. the fact that you can just go to a screening and bump into everybody you know and, and yeah yeah yeah
1: i mean when you go to the Tech whenever they're doing one of their uh genre films you can count on seeing at least 20 other directors in the genre in mm-hmm. that audience
2: and it was great to feel like i was Coming of age is a big word, but kind of evolving and and becoming a filmmaker while already knowing a lot of these people and having that community that felt very nurturing and very... Um... It's, it's nice because very often you would think that filmmakers would just be in competition and would not support each other, but it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. That and that's that the horror the, community. Is that's the supportive. common
1: attitude outside of the horror community. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons the Masters of Horror Dinners became so special is because they became a, a support group for one another. Everybody, when they have a movie coming out or a TV show coming on, everybody was in their corner and helping in every way they can. And we would often ask each other to look at early cuts and and mm-hmm. see early cuts of the films, give notes if, if you really want them, which not everybody really does. Um, but there is a sense of community that people find surprising uh, within our genre. Why do you think that is?
2: I don't know. I Why the gutter it's snipes? The, you know, <laughs> maybe, it's the, maybe it's the misfits together. Yeah. I, 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 it reminds me of something my mom once said when she saw, you know, I was a very lonely kid. I I did not have many friends. I was very nerdy when I was little, but not in the cool way, but just in the bookish kind of...
1: I can identify. Yeah. (laughs) I was
2: not popular at all. And um, and when I moved to LA and I met a lot of you guys and, and, you know, people horror filmmakers but also horror fans and people who like, dress funny and we all have horror t-shirts and i send my mom a picture and i'm like look at my friends i'm so happy and she's like oh you found your weirdos <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and i think that's that like we found our weirdos and that's we exactly like it. each other and, yeah
1: you know. and you're not wearing skulls or skeleton bones on your clothes today which is very rare
2: no just frankenstein yeah frankenstein yeah, just a monster enough.
1: yeah that'll do <laughs> well let's go back to soulmate which you wrote and directed it's a very slow burn ghost story kind of tale tell me about the genesis of that and how that came to be
2: so at the time i was living in london and i uh, went for a weekend in the countryside and i came across all those beautiful little cottages and mm-hmm. villages and i thought this was before even woman in black came out so this was right. a while ago it took a while to get made and i i there weren't that many ghost movies getting made at the time. It was pre Conjuring, even, and and I thought, you know this what, is like 2012,
1: this... 13, something like that. When the
2: idea came up, it was maybe twenty eleven, something like that. Yeah. I think the movie came out in twenty fourteen, so yes. it was a few years before that. And I kind of thought, this is where all those ghost stories are born. This is this is the place. This it feels like. I want to bring this back. I feel like we need to have more British ghost stories. And and again, I was obsessed with ghosts since I was yeah. little. So it, just looking at those cottages just felt like, Oh, this is such a perfect setting. And so I just wrote something that would be a two hander in a cottage. And one of the two people is a ghost. And I made it for almost nothing under a $200,000. Wow. Um, so clearly the effects are not, there's no effects. Right. <laughs> this is a guy right. painted in white. Yeah. Um, but we, Got the time to, you know, what we didn't put in effects for what it's worth, we put into having time to have good performances. I think Anna Walton, who was in Hellboy 2, she's fantastic in this. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm very proud of. Um, There's, I think it looks great. I think, you know, looking back, there's a lot of stuff that I really like. There's a lot of atmosphere, and I'm madly in love with the locations. Yeah. But I also learned a lot. And I find that looking back at anything, I do was cringy. <laughs>
1: well, if you don't, you're a hack. <laughs> you know. Well, what is it about horror stories in particular? I mean, ghost stories in particular. You even wrote a book about ghost stories. Yeah. Uh, for uh, Fright Fest. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the appeal of that. The 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 grasp between the living and the formerly living.
2: You know, I I don't have faith. I don't. I was raised Christian, but I don't believe in. God or an afterlife or anything like that, and I think that part of me just craves that idea of something existing afterwards. Something that you know, I love the idea that when my loved ones are gone, they're not gone. Yeah. That there's there's something hopeful in the supernatural. There's something comforting about the idea that maybe there's something that we don't understand. There's something greater than ourselves that would be. I usually find the supernatural very comforting, and I think that somehow every story I write has a, a hint of that. Yeah. As a hint of I mean, the manner has that idea too. Like the the thing that you think is gonna be scary actually offers something that's comfortable. Um and it, yeah, I think ghosts are the perfect metaphor for that. Although in this case in Soulmate it doesn't
1: turn out too great. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is a movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are the ghost stories that you embrace? What are the what are your favorites?
2: Oh god. Um I mean the haunting, the haunting or legend the haunting of the hill house? Oh, yeah. both of those. Yeah. yeah, legend of hill house is fantastic. Obviously, haunting of hill house um, was phenomenal. Um, the orphanage.
1: Oh um, yeah, that's great.
2: I don't know. You put me on blast. I think there (laughs) might be 20. Uh, Ghost and Mrs. Muir is one that we don't talk very often about. That's for sure. And that's one that I've ripped off on more than one occasion. (laughs) (laughs) Let me rephrase. This is one I was inspired by. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) The inspiration that's
3: there. Hey, postmortem fans. Producer Joe here to let you know that today's podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I can tell you with all the stress that comes from working in the movie industry, that is something I ask myself every day. Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's easy. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. There are a broad range of expertise which may not be locally available in many areas, and the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted daily like this one. Within two sessions, many of my issues have become clearer, and BetterHelp has provided me with comfort and confidence to move forward. Visit betterhelp.com postmortem, that's Better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2,000 people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. And we have a special offer for postmortem listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash postmortem. That's betterhelp.com. Well, you're moving from doing a couple of
1: feature films on a very low budget but um high profile in the case of tales of halloween but then you make a move into television and netflix the uh, writing for the sabrina reboot tell me how that came about and what that experience was like
2: right that was completely left field that was um i was writing a lot of things i'd been writing for some people kind of you know nothing that got made and then um And I wrote this pilot that got me a a great manager who's very enthusiastic about my career, Kaylee. Um, She's awesome. And she calls me one day and she's like, hey, you have a meeting tomorrow to work on this TV show. Do you want to be in a writer's room? Uh, You want to be in a writer's room. You do. Uh, (laughs) No question. (laughs) Take the meeting tomorrow. And I actually think that when I got that call, I was at lunch with you. Oh, uh, yeah. If I remember well. I do remember yeah. that. Wow. So I didn't I, realize that's what I was going to meet Roberto, uh, Roberto Roberto Aguirre Sacasa the next day and uh, to start on the Monday. That was a Friday. And, and I got the job on the Friday afternoon. And then I started on the following Monday. And that, wow. it changed my life. It was great. It very much, you know, there's few milestones like that that you can think of looking at. Well, you're back. making your
1: living as a writer now.
2: Yeah or director like that really that was the first job that I had that was kind of like hey you're good enough to have an office and have money and yeah join a (laughs) guild yeah Yeah. join the guild and, and and contribute to something that a lot of people are going to see and that I was very passionate about I mean I loved that that first I worked on the first season of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and I loved it. It was wonderful. I spent six months just talking about the devil and witches with (laughs) a bunch of people who were passionate about this stuff. It was wonderful. Well, tell
1: me what that was like working in a writer's room, despite all the writing I've done and the series work I've done and the like... Um, when I was producing Masters of Horror, there was no writer 's room. I was the writer 's room and uh so, what is that experience like, particularly on a genre show with hopefully people who all were passionate about
2: it they were They were all passionate about it, and Roberto's a huge horror geek too, so everybody kind of spoke the same language um it I think the thing that I had to learn. Um, That was the most surprising, perhaps, but it makes perfect sense when you look back is that you're not there to solve all the issues you're there to um, help someone's vision, understand what that person's vision is and serve that vision. And in the first couple of weeks, we would discuss things, and then we would leave it sometimes with questions unanswered. And I would go to home. I would go home and just be like, "How do I solve this?" Because you know, as a as an indie filmmaker, everything's on your shoulders. And then I would have to remind myself, "Oh, it's not on me." <laughs> right,
1: you're sharing. <laughs> it's the not load. on me yeah. exactly.
2: It's just it's wonderful because solutions come from discussions and come from a um, showrunner who has a singular vision and knows where he's going and uh where she's going and it's just it's a completely different art form, and it's very, very interesting to see how that works and so
1: even if you're credited with the writing of a of a teleplay of an episode, other people are, uh, have contributed to that as yeah, well, yeah, yeah and even if you're not effort.
2: credited, you've probably worked on them too. I've written scenes right. for pretty much every episode in that first season, but I'm only credited on one and and that's just how it works it's you know that's kind of those like rooms that on are amazing, collaborative, yeah,
1: on amazing stories, that was the only time where I worked with other. Other writers and the like. But again, most of them were freelancers who did an episode here and there. And I was mm-hmm. story editor, so I would do most of the rewrites, unless Josh and John, the, the executive producers, did. Wow. But uh, so I've never really been in a standard issue uh, writer's room. And it, the, the concept is fascinating. Yeah, and I and think they all great. work
2: differently, and they all kind yeah. of depend on the personality of the showrunner and, and how they want to run the room. And yeah.
1: Tell me about (laughs) Creepshow. Tell me about it. I know it's done very quickly on a very tight budget. Um, We love Greg Nicotero and everything. So tell me about your experience on that.
2: So I, um, after Sabrina, I got to do some directing and I I got to shoot this movie that's coming out and then I got to do uh, my first episode of TV and then the pandemic hit. And... um, the opportunity of doing creep show came up and it was the first thing in the pandemic that you know after months of not working and not being on set that was offered and i'm a huge fan of creep show like oh, I, yeah. I you know everybody I, we all love the, the movies yeah, and we, meteor we've got we've, yeah. <laughs> we've grown up with that so that's you know the idea of going to work with greg nicotero and 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 doing something that has the creep show brand and the creep show style and it's just such a cool idea and, uh, yes, it's done really quickly, but it's um, done by a bunch of horror nerds, which, again, is wonderful. <laughs> like, you feel right at home. Um, I have two stories, one that came out earlier this year and then one that comes out in October. And the first one was uh, the one that's come out already very much my jam. Like It's a big spooky house, you know, big Victorian house with lots of hidden traps and, and cool contraptions. And, funnily, the lead actress, um, Iman Benson, I just worked with again on Midnight Club. Oh, She's cool. wonderful. She's yeah. really, really cool, and yeah, I got to do. A, there was a monster at some point that I got to work on, and and Greg Nicotero was there, and you know, the, well, you're kind of standing makes, on set yeah. next to him, just going, "This is so cool." This
1: everybody is... who makes Creepshow is a 13 year old horror geek. Pretty much, yeah. yes,
3: yes, <laughs> and that's like...
2: the reason everybody's into it, and it's great because you, it's it's the set where you will see the hugest amount of horror t-shirts.
3: Right.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you've kind of stepped into this world of television, horror television, in a way that has offered you many opportunities. And um, yeah, you, you did the Bly Manor. And tell me about that experience. You know, we'd come right off of Hill House and Flanagan doing a sequel to that, and Into Bly Manor, uh, uh, and you did the black and white episode, I did. which was particularly special. So tell me, how you, was that your idea or was it scripted that way?
2: No, I, you know, I, I, I got the meeting for Haunting of Bly Manor. Again, I, I'd, I'd seen Hill House and I loved it. I thought it was An one of the best show. things we'd seen on TV. Yeah. And <clears throat> and, uh, and I got the meeting, and I'd met Mike just once a long time before that, and I remember he said, oh, I love Soulmate, and I'm like, you're right, like, no one loves Soulmate, let me tell you. (laughs) But I guess he was genuine about it, because he, you know, he, he brought me back, like, he invited me, and he said, look, this is, I feel like the sensibility that you've shown during this movie was, was right for this, and so I'd love to give you this shot. And And I remember spending time with him and with Trevor Macy, the producer, and just discussing the process and, and discussing what they're doing and how they're doing it and just thinking, well, tell me, give I'll us some insight. I'll never get the gig, but just the <laughs> fact that I got to spend time with them is wonderful, and and then I got it, and I got to do this. And- well,
1: give me some of the insight of what they were looking for and, and what those conversations were like where you found out that you were – uh, simpatico. Um,
2: one of the things that I think that Mike is very specific about and that I completely agree with and where we are very much in sync is the fact that I feel horror is wonderful. The world is wonderful. The monsters, all that stuff is that's, that's the glue that we love, but what is core to every story is character and emotion. And it's leading the story with emotions. And, um, and I think he does that in everything. He, directs and everything he writes it's, it's always very very emotional and very kind of um character-based and, and wonderful that's from the, the beginning yeah, yeah and that's one of the things about tv is like you want to fall in love with those characters and want to come back so i think that's why also he's found such a great home in tv on top of all the fantastic features that right he's done. but um yeah i i was offered that episode and then they called me and they said look it's kind of a standalone it takes place in the 17th century, and we're thinking, if you're okay with this, we were thinking maybe black and white. And if like, you're oh okay with God, it. Oh, my God, if I'm okay with it. <laughs> like every movie that I could have thought of as a reference was black and white. And so wow. the idea of getting to shoot something in black and white was just, ah, oh, and it's gothic, and and you can make it as kind of contrasty and spooky as you want. It's all about atmosphere. This is so my jam. It was just, it was my first TV episode, and the fact that I was trusted with something that was so Completely um, in sync with my tastes, I couldn't believe it. But
1: it's also high-end television. This was like an expensive Netflix show, and your first TV episode. That's a great deal of trust.
2: It's unbelievable. I, I think that Mike Flanagan is a genius and a madman, and I <laughs> could not be more grateful to him. You know, he it's it's very much changed my career and and the way that things have been going since. And. Um, and the fact that it would come from somebody that I admire so so much is just this cherry on the cake, you know. It, but yeah, it's it's an episode that um, when I look back, a, a friend of ours, Alejandro Bruges, yeah. watched the episode and he said that's the most Axel thing you've made, and uh, I said yes, awesome. yeah, it is. It's also the most Mike Flanagan thing that you know it's completely yeah. his. But somehow, because he's very good at marrying his vision with the right filmmaker, it just feels very much like it's mine as well. very, very proud of it. And I loved working with Kate Siegel and with Katie Parker. Yeah. Fantastic cast.
1: Yeah. Great cast on the show. And now he's asked you back uh, for the Christopher Pike uh, Midnight Club.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I just got to do two episodes.
1: Two episodes. That's great. And those were done in In Vancouver Vancouver. as well. And
2: again, without giving anything away, I'll say that one of the two episodes was a genuine challenge um and very very exciting and incredibly tough and incredibly emotional and awesome and I'm very curious to see how it all turns out and all comes together
1: can't wait I'm as of this recording uh on Monday I'm going to a screening of the first two episodes of midnight mass oh nice so I'm very excited about that I'm a huge Flanagan fan as well so the most recent thing with just this week as we're recording this um your American horror story episode came on and it's amazing I think the show has been up and down here and there but this season seems to be killing it again and yours was episode four
2: mm-hmm. i got another flashback episode yeah a
1: and halloween it's, episode. it's great yeah a halloween <laughs> episode you get to have people in costume in foreground everywhere I do. I <laughs> so, do. so tell me about the the difference in working with the ryan murphy brad falchick uh camp as opposed to flanagan and the like and what they're going for
2: right um Again, what a dream come true, American Horror Story. I love that show. Um, Very, very different work. Um, I think that when you go on a Mike Flanagan show, he's expecting you to come up with a vision and to solve big challenges that he throws at you. While American Horror Story is a little bit more, it's a more established show. And the fact that it's been running for, we're on season 10. People know what they're doing. The train is on the tracks. Just don't derail the train. Right. Um, and so it, it it presents different challenges. It's a different way of like what's expected of you is a little so bit different.
1: Is there an established look that they keep you to the use of lenses and the like? Uh,
2: to a point, like there's an established look in that, especially for these episodes, they had a, a, a color palette that was established that was very clear. But for mine, I got to, because it's a flashback, I got to bring a little bit more color and kind of play with it a little bit differently. So again, I got a little bit more leeway in those, in those terms. Um, but you can know it's very you're very free when it comes to what you like what lenses you want to use or what movements you want. To, at no point did anyone tell me there was something I couldn't do. I did some some weird transitions between scenes and things like that and, and it was like, No, great, let's try it. Let's try it. Worse that it can that can happen is we don't use the shot, but like they went with all of the madness, and I love that.
1: <laughs> that's oh. great. Well, that's one thing about American Horror Story; they're not afraid of just breaking every taboo there is yeah, out yeah.
2: there. And they're definitely not opposed to a fish eye lens every once in a while, for right. sure. Right, and
1: uh, they use the ten mil a lot.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and I, I love the those. Me um, too. Yeah, really it.
1: wide and really long. That's yes. what I like.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> very close. Yeah, close to people. To yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But fascinating um, stuff. On my
2: feature, I think the DP referred to the, the 12 mil as <laughs> the axle. The axle.
1: Okay, perfect. So they also are naughty, They're not only breaking taboos as far as violence on television goes, but the sexual aspects of it, too, are something they seem to take pride in. Mm-hmm. And tell me about uh, that. That was something that most of your work has not really touched upon.
2: Well, and neither does the this episode.
1: Not the episode so much. There's a little bit in there, but it's more verbal. It's not... It, yeah, it's, but it's, it's that's fun to yeah, play with. It's the fun stuff. Yeah,
2: and it's such a great cast. And hearing those lines delivered, I mean, it's hilarious. It's yeah. Francis Conroy and, yeah. It, it, no, it it didn't... I didn't feel like this episode was particularly about breaking taboos, but what it felt right. like... Compared to the rest of the of the season, and and again, that's something that really gelled with me and was very good. Is that I felt it was a little bit more emotional because it's the backstory of some of those people and how they got to where they are, and there's something very sad about it. And this season, this whole exploration of talent and success and what it takes to be an artist and what it takes to succeed in art and and. You know, you take this pill, and if you're talented, you become something amazing. And if you're not talented, you become kind of a zombie vampire creature. And and that's everybody's (laughs) fear, isn't it? Or maybe there's just me. (laughs) You take that pill, and you would end up being one of those people. And just, you know, oh, I don't have it. Sorry, I just don't have talent.
1: (laughs) Well, this season, and and your episode in particular, the series is much less in love with camp. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's to the the betterment of the show. I think it's really strong because it takes itself more seriously. It isn't afraid of going there, but it's taking its characters and its stories much more seriously and approaching them more seriously right. than than the last couple of seasons. Perhaps. Very
2: tight scripts too. Very um, yeah. Very kind of real world. But there's two sides to this season, so we've we're we're only watching the first half, and the second half is right. going to be different.
1: A totally different storyline, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and different characters.
2: Aliens and characters, and, yeah. Ah,
1: yeah. okay. Looking forward to that. Well, even though you made it before, um, the most up-to-date release of yours uh, coming in October, which is around the the time this show will be aired is the manor which started out as crones (laughs) um but it's a movie for blumhouse and amazon and it's a self-contained uh spooky old house (laughs) old folks uh manor uh starring barbara hershey who worked with me on riding the bullet and i loved tremendously so tell me where that came from
2: so it's a it's a story that's been in my head for a little bit um and again, it took a while to get made, so it's unsurprising that it's it's known various iterations. But um, it started out, I think I've always been scared of aging, and I think everybody's kind of scared of it to a degree. But, but that's really something that haunted me from a young age, was seeing that over a certain age, we seem to treat people like they're a different creature, like they're kind of they're not the same person anymore. We address them differently. And, and the way that society deals with them makes that worse. And I was very scared of that. I was scared of seeing my mom getting older, yeah. you know, my dad getting older, and then not even thinking of myself, but just kind of that idea like, oh, you turn into something else. I mean, how spooky. Um, but that's not, that's not the way we should look at Age. It's it should be the most natural process in the world, and, and so unavoidable. Yeah. And unavoidable. <laughs> un- well, yeah, we can't do anything about it anyway. So, so it, it it seemed like it was a fear that was ripe with, um society kind of themes and and things to explore and things that I wanted to talk about. And at the same time, it was that around the same time I saw my granddad go to a nursing home, and then I saw my dad go to a nursing home, yeah. and in both cases. That experience of being in these places, being treated in a different way, and being regarded as a different, as being at a different stage in their lives, changed them, and they changed very quickly. and And they saw that happen, and I found that very, um, very striking. And you can go to those places without being confronted to your own mortality in one way or another. And so it, all of that was kind of playing in my head. And then the fact that at some point I remember visiting my granddad, and he saw something. Behind me, he said, there's someone at the door. And I turned around and I didn't see anybody. And I straight away dismissed it and like, nah, he must be, you know. My
1: mother did that too, shortly before she passed.
2: And we, we don't, it's bizarre how suddenly you're just like, well, yes, but he's old and I can't trust anything. And, and he was convinced that it was there. And, and, and I thought, if something, if something were to happen to you, something supernatural were to happen to you in those houses, there is no help you will not be believed. People will think you have dementia. People will think it's part of age and and those are very dark themes that seem perfect for for a horror movie but also kind of important and relevant and and uh and yeah, it seemed very dark and so I kind of compensated that by making it more gothic and more fun right. by bringing in the creature and and right. trying you to have make a monster it I don't in want it. it to be a depressing, you know, experience yeah. to watch.
1: Well, it felt personal to to you. Uh, knowing you and and you went through a tough time going through your father's passing and his Mm -hmm. experiences with dementia and the like. And I'm sure that that, you brought that with you to the set every day.
2: Yeah, it used to be much more about the story. used to be much more dementia-based. And then that evolved into something else where it used to be more about my father and then it became about my own fears and my own kind of ways of you know as I get older too kind of thinking what does it mean when you're over 30 when you're over 40 like looking at age and, and and who you are and and all that went into it as well and but yes it's very inspired by by him and it felt it's a very personal story but again I don't all this seems very dark and I don't want to give the impression that it's a very depressing movie right. to watch. There's right. a version of this that could have been very hereditary and very kind of realistic and depressing and dark. And I love hereditary, by the way, but but that's just, right. that's not what it's got in me. Like, somehow I like things that look like... It's a recreational bit more and yeah. more fairy tale like and yeah. more kind of a little bit more
1: fun. Well, how in the world were you able to sell a project about old people to Blumhouse?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm still wondering. <laughs> <laughs> I actually sold it to Amazon, and it's Amazon who brought oh, it to Blumhouse. Oh, they took it to Blumhouse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: so but that—that that, we're joking. But it must have been challenging to have a story that it, it involves senior citizens. It's not the days of cocoon anymore, and. Probably because there aren't other people pitching stories like this in the genre, mm-hmm. it became a unique opportunity to do that.
2: It's it's definitely challenging and, and um it's a script that a lot of places were interested in, but they all wanted to change the setting to uh, a mental hospital so we can have younger people instead of making it about age or put the accent more on the grandson and make him the hero in the center of the whole thing. And, and so, and I was very, very specific about the fact that, no, it had to be about Judith. It has to be about the woman who moves into the nursing home because that's who everything happens to. And this is the point of view I want to show. And I want to show that if I'm scared of getting older, I want to see people of a certain age be amazing and be charismatic and be strong and be funny and be people I can look up to. And I wanted to create that character. And then, and then I got the wonderful chance of having Barbara Hershey play that character. Yeah, but- Barbara
1: Hershey, who is astonishing to find, she's in her 70s. And yes. she plays a 70-year-old in this. Yeah. And a 70-year-old you would never expect to see in a nursing home. hmm So tell me about the casting process and, and when you met Barbara and how you knew she was the one for this.
2: Yeah, I've always been a fan of hers. I mean, I think everybody in, in horror is kind of, you know, the entity insidious, yeah. the black swan, like she's such an icon and I we thought of her early on. I had thought of her. And then it seemed like is she gonna want to play something like this? Is this going to gel with her image? Is this That's and then, that's rough. Yeah. You know,
1: an actress once they commit to playing a seventy-year-old is never going to play anything but seventy-year-olds.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like it's like a younger woman playing a mom for the first time. And night. it's an it ugly like Hollywood like a, secret. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. It
1: doesn't happen to men. Doesn't happen. But uh, and it's women a horror
2: get, movie, so it's not seen yeah. as a worthy award-winning drama. So right. you can't have the same kind of clout appeal that you would if if you were making something like judy dench or right (laughs) right as much as they wish that we could have judy dench in horror movies it would be wonderful but it's um it was hard it was hard to find the right person but barbara read this and and really embraced it and just really kind of went for it and brought that strength and that vulnerability at the same time and she doesn't she didn't mind being seen as this person and at the same time she she does it all well bringing all that kind of sassy energy to it and she's fun and playful and yeah she's incredibly charismatic she's yep. incredibly funny yeah yeah she was i mean she was a dream honestly
1: well a great actor is really bold and will take chances and will do things in spite of what people might think mm-hmm. and uh, there there has to be an ability to go naked before the audience and yeah. take
2: it seriously, yeah. and not feel like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn this into something more camp because I'm better than the material. Kind yeah, of like she really, very, took it very seriously, and you know, every line had to be something she believed in before she would say it in front of the camera. So it was, uh, it was a process, but it was a great process. It was actually yeah. very. like, collaborative in the most wonderful way. It, was, it wasn't confrontational. It didn't feel like I'm discussing things for the sake of discussing things. She was discussing things because she wanted to know deeply what everything was supposed to mean and how everything was supposed to lead to the next emotion and the next scene.
1: Plus, 90% of the movie is shot in one location. yeah, And that affords you an awful lot of time to actually do rehearsals and actually work together with a cast. And all the when rest
2: you're... is a different location. So there's one other location. Right,
1: right. And so... <laughs> You don't have those constant moves that take up hours out of every Mm -hmm. day and and no shooting and nothing you can do except move and set up and tear down and all those things. This is self-contained the way it was when I was doing The Shining. So much of that was all shot in one location that it really allowed me to try some cinematic things that I might not have been able to try on the run like we were in The Stand.
2: Mm -hmm. And to give time for performances as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So often you meet your cast when you're ready to call action. <laughs> you know, you see them on the set. You do a run through of the lines in the scene, and then you shoot it.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the case for a lot of <laughs> of this as well. I don't want to make yeah. it look like we had so much time. But um, no, but you, but you were was, in one place. Was, yeah, and and we could we didn't have to run when we were doing it. It wasn't. It wasn't super comfortable like it's not like we were making you know we didn't have a luxury of time i don't think anyone ever does no but, <laughs> but it didn't feel like but it didn't feel like we were up against the clock every second and we had to compromise things or compromise performances specifically to get there and that's why i think that i mean again barbara is phenomenal but i think her grandson is really great too and and they have a great yeah. bond and yeah. they got to create that together and and you know it was um
1: Tell me how you prep, you know do you storyboard do you shot list do you do you rehearse a lot uh, on your own or with the actors? Tell me what your process is when you're getting ready to start a new show
2: that's constantly evolving yeah, as I'm learning more <laughs> and as I'm adapting to what the specific project is, there's some projects where you feel like you've over prepped in some ways, and that makes you i on haunting i shot listed everything and i i always come in with references like picture references and ideas and and things where i can show very specifically what i'd like and on some shows it's just not really what you need it's you need to adjust more to what the show is throwing at you Right. and uh but on haunting it was great because you could really just mike flanagan is very specific about the way that he preps and I want to learn more from him about that, actually, I realized on Midnight Club, the extent to which he preps and to which he's prepared and ready with his DP. And I, I'm very envious of that. But it was kind of trying to fit into that like idea of we need to know exactly where we're going every moment. Um, on the feature, that was, even though it comes out now, I've shot it before all those TV experiences. Right. So I feel like I've learned a lot since. So you're but,
1: greener then, yeah.
2: I was, I was. There's a lot of stuff. Again, like, you know, like I said, when you I watch something I make, I find it cringy, but I'm, I'm intensely proud of it. Sure. <laughs> but also when you look back and you think, oh, I would have done this differently, or I would have done that differently, or right. like this change. What, why did that make that choice? Or, and I think that when dr- there's two years here, during which I've had the chance to do a lot of stuff, I've, I've learned how to prep in a different way. But we had, I'm trying to remember how long we had to prep. I think we had four weeks. Just you know, the same time we had to shoot it, Yeah. and uh, and it was, it felt fast, but I had a great DP who I discussed every, you know, we shot listed everything before we got there. Uh, we visited the locations as much as possible. We kind of. I One thing I really liked to do was go to a location by myself and spend some time there and just absorb the atmosphere of it. I got to do a lot of that for Bly Manor, which was great. Mm-hmm. Just sit on the set and imagine yeah. what the what every scene would be and what the blocking would be and, and I think it's perhaps more important to know exactly what the blocking would be than to know what the shot list is going to be in some ways unless you have something very specific what I usually do is I have the general shot list and then I bold the ones that are more specific and are ideas that I need to remember on the day like oh if I have this very specific crane shot or this very specific something I need to make sure that that one stands out on my shot list so it's not lost in the middle right. of a single of this character <laughs> yeah, or over oops. the shoulder of that <laughs> one like, yeah
1: yeah so what's your favorite process part of the process is it prep is it shooting is it sound is it casting is it writing
2: i think it's um, a bit of prep and a little bit of shooting i think prep is very exciting when you see things start to come together yeah when you find your locations when your cast comes together it's wonderful it's also kind of the place where dreams get crushed
0: That's the moment where
2: you realize that something that you've dreamed of having is not going to happen. And then you have to find something else to be excited about, but there's great joy in that too. And that's what it's, all about it's kind of adapting to a new it
1: forces you into invention
2: it does it does but it has a little bit of both it has that kind of like oh now i feel really shit about where we're at and then <laughs> oh no but this is great because it's led to this other thing that's amazing and there's always a moment where i'm just kind of like wow well, i don't know if i have this it just just sucks and then another moment where you just feel like the last few days i just want to be on set like, i'm yeah. done i'm
1: prepped i want to do this being surrounded by 60 people and your cast and all these people mm-hmm. all these creative people the electricity of the shoot is. And so
2: being on set is wonderful. It's yeah. just,
1: yeah.
2: it's the best and the worst thing. It's just <laughs> the most, like, I, if, when I'm not on set, I can't wait to be on set. When I'm on set, I can't wait to be done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And being in the editing room where you choose all the gold.
2: You know it's, that? That's the part of the process I like the least.
1: Well, it took me a while because I used to hate the mm. editing room. But I've grown to love it because you can do so much in the shaping of your project. But for the first few years I was directing, it was torture because there were too many choices. And I didn't, I got lost amongst them.
2: I have been very lucky that I got to work with some really great editors um, on the last few projects and on the feature. and, and, And that's made the process much more fun and interesting and um and I completely understand what you mean this is where you actually make the movie but yeah. part of me is kind of looking at this like well I've shot this right. like I've it's like I'm looking at this Christmas present and I've unpacked it and there's another package inside and another, another one and another one and I just want to get to what the gift is <laughs> you feel like you've done the thing where's yeah. the movie <laughs> yeah but that's so where long? you
1: find it yeah. <laughs> That's what, and, and you yeah. sculpt it when you're laying in the sound and the music yeah. and it all comes to life well what's been exciting for me is to be able to track you all the way through your progress as a filmmaker I I knew you from before you were a filmmaker and knowing you all the way through all of these things it's so great to see it happen and you, you couldn't be more deserving
2: thank you well it's, it's been wonderful to have your support all these years oh
1: well, it's been great for me too thanks so much for sharing this and I can't wait to see what happens
2: next oh and you're you're in a movie
1: and I'm in the movie yes. I'm in the manor you blink and you'll miss me but I'm there with Bill Malone <laughs> and his the wife Cece yeah, yeah. Tale of
2: <laughs> right. the Tales of Halloween that's right Tales
1: of Halloween and now the manor so thanks Axel for everything and uh, for joining us on the slab thank you Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.